Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as a social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is from our Hot Topic series, and will focus on an update regarding COVID-19 vaccines. We are pleased to welcome back Dr. John Kelso as a return guest for this topic. Dr. Kelso joined the podcast soon after COVID vaccines were originally released for public use in December 2020 and returns today to provide an update almost one year later. Dr. Kelso is a practicing allergist within the Division of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology at Scripps Clinic in San Diego and a clinical professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. He has a special interest in adverse reactions to vaccines and served as the chief editor for the 2012 Adverse Reactions to Vaccines Practice Parameter Update. This is an important time to emphasize to our listeners that the information we discuss today is current as of November 15th, 2021. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we have learned that information and evidence evolves over time. As such, the information we discuss during today's episode may be subject to change, and I encourage everyone to stay up to date through vetted resources, such as the Academy's COVID-19 Task Force updates or the Centers for Disease Control. And with that, Dr. Kelso, welcome back to the show, and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much for uh, having me back. No, I think this is great. And and our last conversation received such wonderful feedback, and you are just a wealth of information. So it, we just had to have you back now that we have uh, so much more to talk about. And, and last time we chatted in December of 2020, the vaccines were just being rolled out. And since then, there now have been over 430 million doses administered, and almost 200 million Americans have been fully vaccinated, with over 3 billion people worldwide uh, having been fully vaccinated as well. Here we are 11 months later after our initial conversation. What are your overall thoughts on how the vaccine campaign is going? Well, I, I guess I would say generally well, but with a few significant shortcomings. We continue to struggle to get everyone vaccinated due to vaccine hesitancy in the U.S. and other developed countries uh, where there's a plentiful supply of vaccine and also due to the ongoing unavailability of the vaccine in many low and middle income countries. Yeah. Did you think that maybe we would have had even more people vaccinated by this point or, or you know, any thoughts on, you know, if this pandemic perhaps could have, you know, been on the on the way out? per se, if we could have gotten more vaccines and more arms by now? Oh, certainly. So so had we been able to vaccinate more people in countries where vaccine was and is available sooner uh, and also been able to roll out more vaccine around the world, we certainly couldn't have, have gotten ahead of this and, and had a much greater impact in terms of limiting uh, deaths from this disease. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Well, what have we learned thus far regarding the efficacy of COVID vaccines in both adults and adolescents? 
Well, importantly, just as in the clinical trials, the vaccines have proved to be remarkably effective, virtually eliminating the risk of hospitalization or death in fully vaccinated people. Hundreds of thousands of lives have been saved in the U.S. and and literally millions around the world with with the vaccines. If I recall correctly, this was early autumn of last year. So before the vaccine data was even publicly available, I believe the FDA came out and said if they could see, you know, 50 percent efficacy uh, for the vaccines, that they would consider that to be, you know, tremendous benefit. Uh, Did these vaccines surpass that? Oh, absolutely. So you're you're correct that that was the the benchmark for a vaccine to have some impact on the pandemic if it could at least be 50% effective and the vaccine efficacy has turned out both in the trials and in real life to be well above 90%, 95% and uh that that has made a huge difference. So so the vaccines really have been a home run. Yeah, a home run, absolutely. We also know that there's been intense scrutiny of these vaccines throughout the, both the development and then through deployment and with you know hundreds of millions of people uh, receiving these vaccines. So what type of monitoring system has been in place in the United States? Well, really very careful monitoring. So in addition to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VAERS, which is the uh, passive reporting system that's used for all vaccines, The CDC has also rolled out something called vSafe, which is a smartphone app that sends text messages to vaccine recipients who have enrolled in the program to actively inquire about any sort of adverse events following immunization. And also several large healthcare organizations have published studies describing careful monitoring of vaccine recipients, usually the healthcare workers within their organizations. And all of that has provided essentially real-time information on adverse reactions to vaccines, uh, again, not only those passively reported, but but seeking out, actively inquiring about adverse reactions. And all of that information really has been uh, generally very reassuring. Mm. And as more and more people get these vaccines and with that intense scrutiny and monitoring, um, that should allow for very rare events to sort of uh, uh, be caught. Is that correct? Oh, correct. Because even in studies of the vaccines where there may be tens of thousands of participants in the vaccine trial, if an event occurs in one in a hundred thousand or one in a million people, you're likely not going to pick it up in the vaccine trial. But these follow-on monitoring systems would allow some assessment of those very rare adverse events. Mm. And speaking of, I know that is one of the main points of concern, and you, t- you already talked about vaccine hesitancy. So can you offer some insight regarding more of the, you know, the main adverse events that have been reported? And along those lines, let's start with concerns about blood clots associated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. What have we learned from that? So there is a condition called VITT for vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia, which involves thrombus formation, sometimes in unusual locations, such as the cerebral venous sinus or splanchnic vein, and low platelet counts that occurs five to 30 days after receiving the J&J vaccine. Uh, It has been reported not only after that vaccine, which is the one administered in the U.S. of that platform, but uh, also the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine, which is used outside the U.S., but both of those vaccines are adenoviral vector 
DNA vaccines. It appears that this condition is associated with or brought on by autoantibodies against a particular platelet factor, although it's not clear how the vaccine would cause this uh, production of these autoantibodies or lead to this rare side effect. The patients who have been most effective have been younger women, um, but that may simply reflect the demographics of the initial wave of vaccine recipients being mostly healthcare workers and that group skewing toward younger women. Um, it, it really is rare. So this is a, a good example of one of those things that they, they, they wouldn't have seen in the vaccine trials because the estimated rate of this is about two per million vaccinations. So, so this really is a very rare, uh, potentially serious, but very rare side effect of these particular vaccines. Um, but it's also a good example of, of weighing the risk of vaccination against no vaccination because uh, thrombotic complications from COVID disease itself occur at a much higher rate than these rare complications with the, with the vaccines. So um, it's recommended that, that patients who have happened to develop this VITT after the J&J vaccine not receive additional doses of the J&J vaccine, but they can, in fact, receive booster doses with one of the mRNA vaccines. Okay. Uh, what about this concern surrounding myocarditis? Can you explain what that is and in particular how vaccine-induced myocarditis may differ from episodes caused by actual infection? Sure. So uh, myocarditis, or in some cases pericarditis, that's another rare complication related to COVID vaccination. But in this case, with the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer or Moderna, uh, this does seem to be more consistently age and sex related, being seen uh, almost all in adolescent and young adult males. So males, say, between 12 and 29 years of age. And in that demographic, in that group, the rate is maybe 40 per million doses. So uh, more common than the previous adverse event we discussed, but still quite quite rare. And that 40 per million, again, is honed in on that particular uh, age and, and sex group. Um, these patients have typically presented with uh, chest pain, palpitations, or shortness of breath within a week of vaccination, uh, usually after their second dose. Most of the cases have been mild and the symptoms have resolved fairly quickly. Uh, for now, it's recommended that patients who have had myocarditis after an mRNA COVID vaccine not receive additional doses of any COVID vaccine, at least for the time being. Um, however, importantly, um, patients who have had a history of myocarditis unrelated to COVID vaccination can receive any COVID vaccine. Mm. And here again, you know, we're so, as you kind of alluded to, the, the kind of natural disease, just the rate of that, the COVID disease itself can very definitely cause myocarditis or pericarditis. Uh, in some cases with, with long-term sequelae and at a higher rate than that associated with the, with the vaccine. In fact, if I recall correctly, I think you know, major college football conferences delayed the start of their season due to these concerns. Was it in regards to myocarditis with athletes? Does that ring a bell with you? I think I do remember uh, something along those lines. And that you know, we, that, as you suggested at the outset, we really have, a, have learned a lot in this in this year since these vaccines rolled out. So we have a lot more information now about 
the, the rate of these rare side effects and which groups might be more prone to them. But we've also had the information about seeing, unfortunately, people with the disease and the consequences that they suffer, which allows, to, allows us to have a, a risk-benefit uh, analysis. And in, in virtually all cases, that comes down on the side of vaccination being more likely to prevent the very conditions that patients might be concerned about as a side effect of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love how you're explaining things in terms of overall risk as well as risk from the vaccine compared to risk from actual infection. And it, also these important differences between the type of vaccine as well as the patient groups and things like that. So how do you discuss these difficult concepts with patients? That seems like a lot of ground to cover when people have questions surrounding it. Well, it really is, and it takes some time, but I think it's important time spent. Um, it's that really is, that aspect is really an important part of the discussion. These rare adverse events with vaccination, and and what we're doing or trying to do for the patient is put them into context. Um, the the patient often thinks they're weighing the risk of getting the vaccine against no risk. So they think, well, if I don't get the vaccine, I'm not putting myself or my child at risk for these rare adverse events. But really, that's that's not the correct calculation. What they're weighing is the risk of these rare adverse events against the risk of not being vaccinated, of remaining susceptible uh, to the disease, which dramatically increases the risk of getting COVID and symptomatic COVID, which itself has a much higher rate of some of the very same uh, adverse events. And, and of course, in addition to the huge array of other uh, consequences of having COVID, um, cardiac, respiratory, neurological, and otherwise, and and the risk of death from COVID, which is substantial. And then now, as we're seeing with more and more people, this so-called long COVID disease, where people have sequelae months and uh, after after the infection. So um, patients and sometimes even providers may perceive that withholding the vaccine for fear of an adverse re, uh, event is, is somehow prudent or conservative, when in fact, remaining unvaccinated carries a very high risk. Mm-hmm. And what if somebody were to, you know, they have this conversation with you, but then they say, well, I don't know anybody who had COVID uh, or, you know, I, I know somebody who got one of these vaccines and then they, you know, passed out three days later or something like that. So how do you help people understand those sort of uh, anecdotal experiences that they may or may not have? Well, I think, uh, again, kind of putting it in in context, um, the the figures I've been using lately are to, to remind people that maybe they don't know anybody, but the, the disease is still out there. We get a, a bulletin once a week that tells us how many patients within our Scripps hospital system here in San Diego are hospitalized with the disease, how many are in the ICU. And then the number I keep track of is how many patients we have in our very own hospitals on ventilators mm. right now because of COVID. Uh, and it's 19 people. So today there's there's 19 people in our hospitals on a ventilator because of this disease. Um, and also to remind people that we're still, there's about a thousand people across the country dying from this disease every day. So um, I, I think those are kind of uh, facts and figures that somehow jo- may, may jog people's uh, consciousness in a way that to, to, to let them realize that the disease is out there uh, and that it's potentially deadly. No, and as, as you stated, it takes a lot of time and we have to make ourselves available to, to listen to these concerns and, and have conversations and, and meet people where they are at that point in time. Well, 
you know, shortly shortly be, before we last spoke, um, there were the initial reports of anaphylaxis uh, to the COVID vaccines. Uh, I believe that was out of the United Kingdom initially. So what have we learned in regards to the rate of anaphylaxis to these vaccines? So the, the reported rate of anaphylaxis, particularly with the mRNA COVID vaccines, where it's been reported more commonly, uh, the, the numbers have fluctuated, but the latest numbers are somewhere in the vicinity of two to five per million doses of the mRNA vaccine and, and much less frequently with the J&J vaccine. And that our comparator for that is that the, we, we kind of think that with all vaccines in general, there's a rate of anaphylaxis about one per million doses. So if this really is two to five per million. It, it's somewhat elevated over uh, a background rate, if you will, or a, a rate that you would expect or tolerate with other vaccines, um, but but still a very rare event. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it seems like that's actually even declined somewhat since the beginning. Uh, is that correct? After you know, hundreds that, of millions that, of doses? That, that's correct. Some of the initial estimates were uh, 10 per million or 20 per million. And then they, they've, they've kind of, as time has gone on, those, those uh, numbers have come down. Oh, well, Dr. Kelso, have you figured it out or, or you know, like-minded colleagues that have investigated this? Is there a specific mechanism that's causing anaphylaxis in those rare reports? Well, we really are still trying to figure that out. Um, although some of the immediate reactions uh, after vaccination do, in fact, seem to be anaphylactic, um, we really wouldn't have anticipated that because, uh, of course, IgE-mediated reactions require some prior exposure for sensitization and almost all allergens are proteins. So mm -hmm. um, that really doesn't fit. So the, the fact that nobody's ever had this vaccine before, so if you don't have prior exposure to generate IgE antibody, and there's no protein in the vaccine. So um, that, uh, particularly to first doses, at least in theory, it wouldn't be possible to be allergic to the, the vaccine. Um, but uh, so, so it really is not something that we... Uh, would have anticipated. Mm -hmm. And are there other uh, conditions or causes that sort of look like anaphylaxis or may mimic it that may be mistaken for it? Um, you know, what are what are some of the other reasons why people could have symptoms that may look like anaphylaxis, especially when somebody's not really trained in identifying it? Sure, and that that I, I think that's one of the most important lessons that we've learned. Uh, that in fact, the majority of these immediate reactions, and by that we mean somebody gets the vaccine and something happens shortly thereafterwards, um, are in fact not allergic or anaphylactic. Uh, many patients have had reactions that include symptoms and signs that might be consistent with an anaphylactic reaction, uh, such as flushing or numbness and tingling, a sensation of throat closure or lip swelling, but without any sort of documented or more objective findings of hives or wheezing or hypotension. So several published studies have now shown that patients with these milder reactions have gone on to receive the second dose of the vaccine uneventfully, which, mm -hmm. which then in retrospect demonstrates that whatever their initial reaction was, it was not an allergic or anaphylactic reaction. Um, most of those uh, turn out to be something that we're kind of broadly calling immunization stress-related responses or ISRRs. Um, and and some of those are included in the in the rate of the when they're calculating the rate of these reactions. So if you look at the specifics of the reports where they come up, even with the rates of two or five per million, some of those cases are clearly 
uh, not anaphylactic and they're more likely to be these stress-related uh, responses. Um, and, and I think that the, by, by stress, we don't necessarily mean, in fact, we usually don't mean that somebody is particularly high strung or nervous or before they're, they got their vaccine. But when people get, get a vaccine, particularly something new and where there's been some discussion about possible side effects, people can have real physical things happen like flushing or um, more uh, subjective things, tingling and globus and, and whatnot, where they, some, something is in fact happening but it's it's not because of an allergic reaction to the vaccine and and we really do need to not label those as as anaphylaxis and again the many many reports now demonstrating that people who have those kinds of reactions almost always go on to get subsequent doses uneventfully mhm no it's really fascinating um you know early on when we first started learning of these reports of suspected anaphylaxis uh, as you mentioned there's no real proteins in these vaccines so in an effort to identify potential causes uh two specific um chemicals were pointed out one was polyethylene glycol and the other was polysorbate and uh they were labeled uh you know by allergists and our professional societies and even the CDC as you know if you have a known allergy to these that we want to recommend caution with these vaccines so in the you know 11 months since then what has the evidence to date shown regarding these early hypotheses surrounding polyethylene glycol and polysorbate? So uh, polyethylene glycol is one of the ingredients in the mRNA vaccines and uh, polysorbate in the uh, J&J vaccine and other vaccines coming down the line. Um, those chemicals are sort of chemically related, but the, the main focus has been on polyethylene glycol or PEG. And the, the jury is definitely still out on whether PEG has anything at all to do with these reactions. Um, the, um, the vaccines, uh, the, or the polyethylene glycol, has rarely, very rarely, been reported to be a cause of allergic reactions to other medications or products that contain PEG. Um, so laxatives, for example, that you can buy over the counter, uh, some corticosteroid injections have PEG in them, and so some people who've had reactions to those that, that do seem allergic or anaphylactic, it's been demonstrated that some subset of those people has IgE antibody to PEG. So even though it's not a protein, it's a large complex molecule that conceivably you could make IgE antibody to. Um, but and And that's also then the proposed explanation for how somebody could have had a reaction to a vaccine they've never seen before if they had been previously sensitized to PEG, then they could react to the to the PEG in the vaccine. The problem with that, the, the, the theory was not illogical, um, but, but there's several problems with that. Um, one is that we now have quite a bit of data arguing against any sort of IgE to PEG being the, the cause of the reaction. So the vast majority of patients who have immediate reactions to the first dose of an mRNA vaccine have negative PEG skin test results. And even some of the few who've had positive PEG skin test results have gone on to receive their second dose uneventfully. Um, some percentage of the general population also has uh, IgG or IgM antibodies to PEG, likely due to these prior exposures. Um, and some uh, another theory about how those antibodies might cause something that looks like anaphylaxis is something called complement activation related pseudoallergy or CARPA. 
Um, so people are looking into that as a possible explanation as well, but the evidence for that is also still quite quite limited. Part, part of that may be driven by the fact that there's really a tiny amount of peg in the in a dose of this vaccine, so like 50 micrograms, for example. Mm -hmm. And that compares when, when other people have had reactions, say, to a corticosteroid injection that has peg in it, that has almost 30 milligrams of peg in it. So mm -hmm. e even if you're one of the really rare people who's peg allergic, there just may not be enough peg in the vaccine to, to cause a reaction. So uh, folks are still working on that, but the um, we, we really don't know at this point whether or not PEG is responsible for any of these reactions. Mm -hmm. And you touched upon some of the publications, and there's been many great publications throughout uh, trying to investigate, you know, PEG and polysorbate and, and how best to approach these patients, uh, including extensive skin testing regimens, dose-graded administration, you know, things along those lines. So what's the best current advice at this time for allergists and patients regarding polyethylene glycol and polysorbate allergies? How should we approach those patients or, or you know, what, what steps should we take? Well, I think given the fact that most patients with immediate reactions to the vaccines are not PEG allergic, uh, and that the fact that even patients who are may tolerate the vaccines without reaction, I really don't think there's any place for any sort of PEG or polysorbate testing prior to vaccination even in patients who have histories that might suggest an allergy to uh, a, a, a prior exposure to PEG in one of these other PEG-containing products. Uh, because as these various publications have come out, they, they've become themselves less enthusiastic about PEG testing. The most recent one had a title that included words along the line that PEG testing is of limited clinical utility. And I, mm -hmm. I would certainly agree, agree with that. So. Uh, there's there's no story that a patient can tell me about prior reactions to medications or somehow thinking that they're PEG allergic or uh, anything to do with PEG that would make me think that they need PEG or vaccine skin testing prior to getting the vaccine. I tell them just go ahead and get the vaccine and um, that the vast majority of them are going to tolerate it um, un uneventfully. Um, so uh, again, because ev even in those very rare patients who may be PEG allergic, there, there may not be enough PEG in the vaccine to, to cause a reaction. And, and, and again, we, we're balancing things here because this, this pre-vaccine skin testing regimen with the PEG and the polysorbate and all these different doses and whatnot um, is really an unnecessary barrier to immunization. Mm -hmm. um, now, in somebody who has a convincingly anaphylactic reaction to the vaccine itself, then afterward, then I do think some sort of testing is is appropriate. And in that case, I think testing with the vaccine itself is the most direct and appropriate kind of testing to do. So if somebody who had something that may have been an anaphylactic reaction to the vaccine, uh, if we skin test them with the vaccine and it's negative, that really argues that their original reaction was not allergic and they can get their subsequent doses in the usual manner. But typically under observation, given the, the fact that they had some reaction to the first one. Um, there are reports now, published reports of patients who've had apparent allergic reactions to a first dose of the vaccine who were skin tested with the vaccine and the vaccine skin tests were positive, but who have, again, gone on and received subsequent doses, but but in, in graded doses. So the, this is the time that you might consider 
offering the vaccine in graded doses under observation, um, because that also has been uh, successful with this and, and other vaccines. So um, even in that test, in that situation, you might think, well, the patient's history positive for a reaction and, and their vaccine skin tests are positive, maybe then you should do the PEG skin test and see if that's what, what was responsible. But again, given the the all the variables about PEG skin testing and its apparent very limited sensitivity and, and specificity, I, I think any sort of PEG investigation should be confined to a, a research setting. And that if we if we so so really the bottom line would be no, no testing up front for anybody before getting their vaccine. If somebody happens to have a reaction to their vaccine, again, if it's one of these mild subjective things, they can be reassured that that uh, is almost certainly not allergic and almost certainly won't happen again, and they can get their second dose. The ones that we're thinking, well, you know, maybe that really was an anaphylactic reaction that we would consider skin testing with the vaccine and letting that guide our decision about uh, either a second dose as a single dose or a second dose by a, by a graded dose uh, protocol. I, I think that's a wonderful summary. And do we have any information in regards to a non-irritating concentration for skin testing purposes? Uh, we do. So with this vaccine, as with other vaccines, it appears that uh, doing a prick skin test with a vaccine full strength or undiluted uh, is non-irritating, and that uh, do, using a 1 to 100 dilution of uh, the vaccine for an intradermal test, diluting it typically in normal saline, is also non-irritating. There was one report that indicated that the Pfizer vaccine could actually be used full strength as an intradermal test, but that that's, we have limited information on that. So I, I think the, the general scheme we follow with other vaccines is sufficient prick full strength, and if that's negative, ID 1 to 100. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, um, to, from what I'm hearing from what you describe, we really shouldn't be saying to any patient, do, at least due to concern for allergy to these components of the vaccine, that no, you absolutely cannot receive the immunization. Um, it sounds like this is ripe for shared decision making and we can just figure out the best way to administer it uh, very safely. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. And what about all of our patients who have uh, food, environmental, medication, venom allergies? Have we found any signals in regards to increased risk for allergic reactions to any of the COVID vaccines in that population? Well, it, it is correct that almost all of the reports about possible allergic reactions to the vaccines in, the, in those series of patients, about two-thirds of the patients who report these reactions to the vaccines also report some other allergy, food or drug or stinging insect, for example. Um, and although that could indicate that people with those other allergies are more prone to vaccine reactions, uh, it may be that they're just more likely to interpret symptoms that they may have as being allergic or, or to report symptoms that they're having as being allergic because they're allergic patients. Uh, and that may be true on the other end, too, of the, of the vaccine provider. So um, because this notion has been out there that these other allergies could increase the rate of reactions to vaccine, vaccine providers may be sort of uh, more on the lookout for something that might be an allergic reaction in those patients. So um, the, the, if you, the, the vast majority of patients who have even life-threatening reactions to foods and drugs and stinging insects and all these other substances tolerate their vaccines absolutely uneventfully. So uh, th this also does not rise 
to um, the level that it would warrant any sort of special consideration or concern as far as vaccine administration. So when I see patients who uh, come in and they have their asthma and allergic rhinitis and food allergy and, and you know, but but the, the visit is has something to do with their concern about COVID vaccine, I carefully go through all of their other allergic conditions and address those as I would for any other patients. And then I put down my pen and I look them in the eye and I say, now, having said all that, even with your other allergic conditions, you are not at an increased risk to have a reaction to the vaccine. Uh, most people in your circumstance get the vaccine without any reaction. And again, the, the importance of getting the vaccine far outweighs any uh, potential risk. So I, I think even though that association is there, again, looking at it the other way, the fact that the overwhelming number of patients with those conditions will tolerate their vaccines uh, and, and the possibility of, of sort of bias in that, in the, in that reporting, uh, I, I think we can tell patients that they really should not be concerned about their other allergic conditions somehow making them more prone to have a reaction to the COVID vaccines. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's excellent advice. And, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, these conditions, the allergic conditions impact millions upon millions of people. But on the flip side, as you mentioned, we have this this huge, you know, group of people receiving these vaccines and we're not seeing any scary signals. So we can just reassure all of our patients, regardless of their allergic history, that um, the benefits outweigh the risk, as you mentioned. Now, shifting gears a little bit, in September of 2021, booster doses were advised for various groups based upon age or other risk factors. What are the current recommendations in regards to booster doses in the COVID vaccines? So uh, it does appear that immunity uh, after a single dose of the J&J vaccine wanes fairly quickly. Uh, And it also appears to wane months, several months, after even a two-dose series of the mRNA vaccine. So it is recommended that anyone, regardless of age or medical condition or other circumstances, who received a single dose of the J&J vaccine should receive a booster uh, if it's been more than two months since their first dose. Uh, The booster after a J&J vaccine can either be another dose of the J&J vaccine or one of the mRNA vaccines. Similarly, uh, it's recommended that certain groups of people, even who received a two-dose series of one of the mRNA vaccines, uh, should receive a booster if it's been more than six months since their second dose of the mRNA vaccine. Um, And those groups include people at higher risk due to age greater than 65, uh, underlying medical conditions, or living or working in circumstances uh, where they'd be more likely to have COVID uh, exposure, such as healthcare workers. Um, If you look, though, on the the list of conditions that would qualify you for an mRNA uh, booster uh, on the CDC website after you get past the kind of more obvious uh, risk factors, there's quite a lot of conditions under there. And and so probably most of the population would qualify for an mRNA booster. And in fact, Pfizer is, is currently seeking FDA approval to offer the booster or to have it approved as a booster for all adults. Um, so uh, I, I'd have a pretty low bar for, for anybody uh, to get a, a booster vaccine. 
Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that I think we've seen is it's as this pandemic has gone on now into almost two years of, of, of living with this virus and trying to combat it in various ways, just the fatigue has set in. And when I think when the first reports about the booster doses came out, people just started saying, oh, my gosh, well, you know, why are we getting vaccinated in the first place? So does the advice to receive a booster dose mean that the vaccines aren't working or or is this sort of an expected occurrence? Uh, they, that, the advice about boosters uh, definitely does not mean that the vaccines aren't aren't effective because they most certainly are. Um, as just one of the examples, as you would expect, based on the effectiveness of the vaccine and the risk of remaining unvaccinated, uh, currently virtually all hospitalizations and deaths from COVID now occur in unvaccinated people. Um, but Uh, As with many vaccines, the protection may wane over time and boosters are required. So, for example, uh, it's recommended that everybody gets a tetanus shot or a Tdap every 10 years. Um, It it may also turn out that this, even though we're calling it a booster, uh, is really just the third dose in a series required to produce a more robust or longer lasting uh, immunity analogous to some other vaccines like hepatitis B. If you get a hepatitis B vaccine, you get a series. You get one at zero, one month, and six months. And then after that, uh, boosters are not required. That's just sort of the normal series. And that may turn out to be the case with the COVID vaccines as well. Um, so, So we'll just have to see what happens in terms of immunity over time after the booster doses in terms of whether or not additional boosters will be required. Um, and um, even before the the broader recommendation for booster doses, you may recall it was recommended that patients who are immune suppressed get a third dose of the vaccine. There was some semantics about that. Well, should we call it a booster or a third dose or whatever? But if you if you had the the idea was either because of age or some other condition, um, you you may not have mounted an, an immune response to the first two doses of the vaccine. But it's clear now that a subset of those people will, in fact, uh, mount a response after they get a third dose. So uh, it's even more important for people um, who who have an immune circumstance, including age, that may have made them not have an adequate response to the first two doses uh, to to get a a third dose or a booster, because uh, that that will, in some people, cause their immune system to sort of final, finally kick in, if you will, and and, and start making antibodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you touched upon this earlier about uh, well, the global distribution of vaccines, and, and uh, sometimes it, we don't always, always have availability of the different types of vaccines everywhere we depend, based on location, I should say. So what have we learned about mixing and matching the different vaccines? Is that okay now, especially with the booster doses? Um, well, we do, in fact, have uh, da- data uh, showing that that is safe and, uh, and effective. And in fact, the current CDC guidelines state that anyone who is receiving a, a booster dose uh, after whatever their initial vaccine was, anybody who's getting a booster can get any of the currently three available vaccines, either the J&J vaccine or Pfizer or Moderna, the two mRNA vaccines. Um, the, the two mRNA vaccines are quite similar, and there's likely not any advantage to switching from Pfizer to Moderna or the other way um, for your for your booster dose. Given the somewhat lower effectiveness and apparent duration of protection from the J&J vaccine, even though you can get a second J&J as your booster, in, in that case, it 
some would argue that it would make more sense to have your booster dose be one of the mRNA vaccines. Mm. Okay, so basically, it, it's it's certainly okay to mix and match, um, and uh, it I guess based upon your eligibility and and what's available in your area, is that how you you would advise patients? Correct, and it, it, it at least in here in San Diego, it's really easy to get a booster mm-hmm. of whatever kind you want. I mean, if you go to vaccines.gov um, and put in your zip code, you'll get a list of all the local places, usually mostly um, uh, pharmacies, where you can pick the day, the time, the brand of whatever vaccine you want um, and answer a few simple questions and be signed up and walk in and get your vaccine. So it's really um, but but for for whatever you know individual people whatever their thoughts are about different vaccines or of course patients bring their own theories about mixing and and matching and so the the, the importance is to go ahead and and complete to, to get vaccinated if you haven't to complete your series if you haven't and if you're uh, now that if you're further out from uh, getting your initial vaccine or two vaccines that now it's time for a booster. And whichever one you're most comfortable with is is fine. It would, in most cases, it'll be the one you got before, or as we talked about with the J and J, you might want to follow up with an mRNA vaccine. But the important thing just is that you're you're getting your booster dose. Mm-hmm. Well, let's discuss what happens after known infection with SARS-CoV-2. And uh, according to testing data, almost 50 million people in the United States have known to to have been infected with SARS-CoV-2 over the last, um, you know, since the start of the pandemic. So what have we learned about natural immunity after infection? And do these people still need to be vaccinated? Uh, As as with the need for boosters with various vaccine, uh, natural infection with diseases produces different levels and durations of protection from reinfection. So for example, um, if you've had measles or mumps or rubella, in childhood, that appears to confer lifelong protection. So I'm of an age where I'm assumed to have had those diseases as a child, and sure enough, I have antibodies to them to this day, and uh, I never needed to get an MMR shot. So in some cases, having a disease uh, confers lifelong protection from reinfection. However, it turns out you very definitely can get reinfected with SARS-CoV-2. You, you can have COVID disease more than, more than once, um, in the case of COVID, vaccination provides greater protection than, than natural infection. So um, among patients who have had COVID disease, they're almost two and a half times as likely to be reinfected if they're unvaccinated than if they're vaccinated. So it's, it's very definitely recommended that even patients who have had proven COVID disease uh, be vaccinated because that will dramatically reduce the likelihood that they would become uh, reinfected. Um, Also, I I run into a lot of patients who describe having had some sort of respiratory illness early on in the pandemic, and they are convinced that they must have had COVID, Mm -hmm. and and so they're protected. Um, It turns out, though, that most of the people who were just sure that they had COVID before testing was available did not have COVID, um, and uh, or, or if they did, their antibodies have 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 waned from their original illness, um, and uh, and they really do require uh, vaccination. So patients who think, oh no, I'm sure I had it, I don't need a vaccine. That that just really is not the case. One because they may very well not have already had it, 
And uh, even if they did, their immunity has likely waned. And even if we know for sure they had COVID disease, they can get it again and they can virtually eliminate that risk by getting vaccinated. Mm. Uh, I don't know about your own personal experience, but I was sure, I mean, sure, sure that I had COVID maybe five or six times in the last year and a half. And every single time testing was completely negative. Um, so yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of different reasons why people can have similar symptoms and illness that looks like COVID, but it's due to something else. Now, for those who have had prior infection, let, let's assume for the sake of this conversation that they tested positive. Um, are there any currently available reliable tests or markers that demonstrate if they have long-lasting immunity from this prior infection? Well, both uh, COVID infection and COVID vaccination lead to an immune response that includes um, not only the production of antibodies, but also a cell-mediated uh, immune response that's also important for protection from disease because antibody responses are much easier to measure than cell-mediated immune responses. The, the antibody tests are, are what are used to evaluate a response either to infection or to immunization. The uh, available tests look at antibodies directed against two different proteins on the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the spike protein, uh, but also something called nucleocapsid protein. So patients who have had COVID infection will typically have antibodies to both, while patients who've been vaccinated will have antibodies only to the spike protein uh, because that's the uh, protein that the vaccines are designed to, to generate an immune response to. Um, most, if you, if you order a spike protein antibody test, um, the, most of the results come back as just positive or negative. Although more recently, some are more quantitative. They'll give you some sort of a level of antibody or uh, a titer of some kind. And in, in some subset of those tests, they actually say that they're looking at neutralizing antibodies, which would be antibodies that would not only be expected to be measurable, but would prevent the, the virus from entering uh, cells. Um, and it, it's certainly logical to assume that people who have higher antibody levels have greater protection, um, but we, that actually has not been demonstrated. We, we don't know what level of antibody against this protein uh, is, is really a surrogate for protection against uh, disease. So um, even in patients who've had COVID infection, who have positive antibody tests demonstrating that they did make some immune response to the, uh, to the infection itself, Though we don't we don't know what number to tell them would protect them from reinfection, and again, we absolutely recommend that those patients still be vaccinated. Mm. And not to mention that those numbers, the levels could change over time. So just because somebody has an antibody test today, who knows what that would look like three to six months from now? Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Well, just a few weeks ago, COVID vaccines were given emergency authorization for use in children five to 11 years of age. What did the data from these trials show regarding safety and efficacy in this younger age group? Well, first, I think it's important to point out why we're vaccinating children in the first place. Um, mm -hmm. Although children clearly are less likely to get severe disease than adults, uh, some definitely still do. Um, there, there have been hundreds of deaths from COVID in children in the United States. Um, in addition, thousands of children uh, have developed a, a sequelae of COVID um, called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC, uh, which may include long-term uh, heart or other damage among the 
survivors. Also, some vaccinated people can still have asymptomatic infection. Um, and uh, unvaccinated person of any age is much uh, greater likelihood of asymptomatic infection. So, so it is true that, and that's kind of one of the arguments, again, you hear that, well, gee, now they're telling us that even vaccinated people can mm. be passing the virus around. And while that's true, you're still much less li likely to have that asymptomatic infection if you've been uh, vaccinated. Um, and, and so um, children, if they remain unvaccinated, even if they don't get symptomatic illness, they can very definitely still have asymptomatic infection, which means they're spreading the virus around, uh, including to family members and community members who may themselves then get severe disease. Um, it also uh, allows unvaccinated people who have this asymptomatic infection to be uh, cranking out new variants. So, you know, we have mm -hmm. the Delta variant that caused another wave of disease. And um, the longer the virus has a chance to circulate in, in people, it has more opportunities to turn into some subsequent uh, uh, variant that may again cause another wave of disease or, or conceivably could require a change in our, our vaccine. So just like with adults, it's very important to, to vaccinate uh, children. But the, the, specifically, it's the, the Pfizer vaccine that's been approved for use in children uh, 5 to 11 years of age, as you said, uh, as it had been previously, that same vaccine for adolescents 12 to 17 years of age. The uh, adolescent dose is the same as for adults, but for the younger children, it's one third of the dose. As far as safety and efficacy, um, the, the rate of adverse reactions was about what was seen in the trials for adolescents and adults, so some fever, headache, fatigue, et cetera, among the vaccine recipients. Um, importantly, there were no cases of myocarditis in the trials in this younger age group of, of children. Um, also, as with adolescents and adults, the, the vaccine is remarkably effective. It's in, in, in this younger age group, the number they came up with was about 90% protection against any form of symptomatic disease in these, in these younger children. So um, no concerning safety signals and, and very, very effective in this younger age group. Are, is there going to be long-term monitoring of this age group uh, once they, you know, as as you mentioned before, um, sometimes the very the very rare adverse events may not be picked up until a larger segment of the population receives the vaccine. So, will the same type of monitoring occur for younger children as well? A absolutely. So, so again, that's a, a good example where the uh, the myocarditis in the uh, older children and young adults. Um, was not appreciated in the trials, but was picked up after the vaccine was in wider use because it's a very rare side effect, and that conceivably could be the case. In fact, the FDA paid some special attention to that in in uh, their assessment of the vaccine for the younger children. So even though they didn't see any in the trials, um, and even though they haven't seen any in the early broader use of it in these younger children, there absolutely are active monitoring. Um, mechanisms uh, to look for that and other unforeseen side effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned the FDA panel and their discussion that took place. I, I thought it was very interesting that they spent some time discussing variables to consider in this age group of 5 to 11-year-olds, uh, and that the decision to vaccinate may shift somewhat based upon different factors. For instance, in June, prior to the spike in cases caused by the Delta variant, the impact of vaccines in children may have been different compared with now. 
can you offer some perspective as to why that is and, and help us sort of think through this uh, I, this concept of different variables impacting our decision making? Uh, yes. Yeah, so the the uh, FDA in their discussion, they they ran various models or scenarios. So they they also when they're uh, th those are the questions they're asking when they decide to uh, approve a vaccine for a different uh, particular age group. Um, you know, is the the risk benefit of that? And so they plug various variables into their their models or um, scenarios and. Uh, in particular, this risk of myocarditis. Um, and again, they didn't did not see that in the younger children in the trials, and not so far in actual use. But, it, but since it was reported and and seen rarely in in older children and young adults, particularly males, um, they're they're really looking out for that. So they sort of plugged that into their their models. Um, and and part of that then would depend on. Um, how much spread of disease there is in the in the community? Because if, since the Delta variant is is much has a much uh, higher transmissibility, there's going to be more many more patients, including children, who get infected with that. And some subset of those uh, children will end up with disease, and some will end up in the ICU, and some of those will have this myocarditis. So when they they plugged in all their variables to decide the, the risk benefit of that. Um, the the fact that the Delta variant is out there and is much more transmissible made it made it crystal clear that the the benefits of vaccination clearly outweighed any risk, e even the sort of theoretical risk that the myocarditis might occur rarely in these younger children. Mm -hmm. Oh, what about um, children less than five years of age? Do we have any idea when we can uh, see data regarding COVID vaccines in that age group? Well, uh, the uh, Pfizer vaccine, uh, the studies are very definitely underway in children as young as six months. So now we're down to six months to four years of age. Uh, those mm. studies are, are underway, and um, at least the company anticipates having uh, results here just in the next uh, few months. Mm. Okay. Throughout the pandemic, misinformation has negatively impacted medical decision-making and the population-level response to public health measures. Have we learned anything regarding vaccine hesitancy and specifically how healthcare professionals can help patients who may be wary of receiving these vaccines? Well, mis misinformation about COVID vaccines has very definitely generated a lot of vaccine hesitancy and, and resistance. Um, the wide availability of that misinformation online and the, the tendency of some people to accept the opinion of politicians and celebrities rather than medical professionals has led to a, a substantial minority who have chosen not to be vaccinated. Um, while controversial vaccine mandates uh, more recently have led some of those people to go ahead and get vaccinated, but others remain skeptical. Um, and, and although it's difficult and time-consuming, as we discussed, it's, it's very worth the effort for us as providers to spend time with those holdouts addressing their concerns as best we can, uh, emphasizing the exceedingly low rate of adverse reactions to the vaccine against the very real risk of becoming seriously ill or dying from COVID, even among otherwise healthy young people, um, and, and even among those who believe they've already had the disease and that that somehow protects them. Um, we emphasize, we can emphasize to patients that the development of the vaccines was not rushed. That's one of the concerns you hear quite frequently. Um, 
the, the timeline was condensed by overlapping the various phases of development. Phase one, two, and three trials were overlapping. Um, and they ramped up manufacturing um, ahead of time so that the vaccine would be available the minute that they could uh, finish the trials. So not, nothing was skipped. It was condensed, but nothing was skipped in, in developing the vaccine. So they really were not rushed. Um, we can emphasize that there's no reason to uh, believe that some adverse reaction to these vaccines will appear months or years in the future, because really that's not plausible, and, and also that's never been seen with any other vaccine. Um, for some, we can appeal to their sense of community, uh, realizing that unvaccinated people can still spread the disease to others and uh, who may become ill or die, and that unvaccinated people may still uh, incubate these other variants. So um, I, I think we need to take the time to kind of lay all those things out for patients, and, and uh, there, there will be some of these holdouts that will be that will be convinced that, that it really is the appropriate thing to do. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's great advice for all of us. Well, Dr. Kelso, I have one last question for you. And if it's okay, we're going to dust off the crystal ball, but we're not going to hold you accountable for any of these predictions because, uh, of course, we can't predict the future. But where do you see things trending as we head through this winter into next spring of 2022? Do you think we're going to reach a point where this goes from being a pandemic to something that's more endemic uh, and an expected part of our lives? What are your thoughts on that? Well, that is uh, certainly the hope. Um, as our vaccination rates slowly creep higher, we reduce the number of people susceptible to the disease and the rates of community spread may become low enough that we can gather unmasked and feel comfortable resuming our lives as they were pre-pandemic as long ago as that seems, hmm. um, which I, will, I, I do believe will likely be the case over the next uh, few months. Um, we'll, we'll have to remain vigilant though, con continuing our vaccination efforts, continuing to persuade folks to get vaccinated and to get uh, boosters when they're recommended to, to maintain whatever control we finally get over the disease. Yeah, well, and I mean this with uh, the utmost respect, but I really hope we don't have to have you back on next year to talk about COVID <laughs> anymore. <laughs> You're welcome back anytime for other reasons, but oh my gosh, this has been a long couple of years. Well, Dr. Kelso, this has been extremely informative uh, as, as it was last time we had you on to talk about the COVID vaccines. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to address these common concerns. And before we depart, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? This, uh, this disease has claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands uh, of our fellow Americans. And... Uh, millions of our fellow human beings around the world. Um, we're, as you've indicated, we're all exhausted. Um, but just as with many other uh, diseases, vaccination continues to be our most important tool to control this, this plague. Uh, smallpox has been eradicated, uh, polio nearly so. Uh, measles, mumps, rubella, tetanus, diphtheria, uh, many other diseases are rare because we vaccinate ourselves and our children. Uh, if we're able to convince enough of our fellow citizens to receive these life-saving vaccines, uh, we can also put COVID-19 behind us. Mm. Well said. Thank you so much again for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, 
Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.